Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, on behalf of the London School of Economics, I'd uh, like to warmly welcome you to um, what is, in fact, uh, the uh, seventh in the series of these annual joint uh, Harvard Law School and um, LSE public lectures on Islamic finance. Uh, my name is William Blair. I'm a, a high court judge here uh, uh, in England, and uh, we have um, uh, two uh, really distinguished guests who I'll introduce in a, in a moment. And uh, it's uh, uh, um, very uh, satisfying for uh, those of us who've been with these lectures for some time now to see another a great turnout tonight, and by the way, uh, we won't forget you up there. Uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, sitting up there in the overspill area. I'm not going to say very much by way of introduction. Uh, some of you here will know a lot about Islamic finance. Um, some of you, like myself, are really here more in the spirit of inquiry and uh, on the basis of uh, what we uh, can learn. Uh, an interesting thing from um, my perspective is that in, in many ways, uh, in terms of an ethical approach to finance, um, Islamic finance uh, got there first. And uh, for many of us, including um, Professor Kershaw sitting in the front there with whom I recently co-authored a paper, the whole idea of uh, ethics in finance has become much more important since the uh, the crash of 2008 that we're still living with the consequences of. So I'm going to allow uh, our um, distinguished uh, speakers to um, deal with the substance of the issue, but I do want to take, if, if I may, a moment just to uh, introduce them. Um, the topic we're discussing, of course, is Islamic finance uh, Sharia compliance, reality and expectation. So that's going to be the focus of the remarks. Our first speaker is um, uh, Tansri Asman Mokhtar, uh, who is the chief executive um, officer uh, and uh, managing director of Kazana Nacional Burhad. And uh, for those of you who um, uh, are familiar with sovereign wealth funds, you'll immediately know that um, uh, Tansri Dato Asman uh, is uh, the managing director of Malaysia's uh, sovereign wealth fund. So um, that is uh, uh, a very senior and influential position. Uh, Tansri, if you don't mind me saying so, you've had a, a distinguished, an equally distinguished career, I should say, before that um, in, um, uh, in investment banking. Uh, he um, is a a chartered certified accountant. Uh, he holds a master's degree from Darwin College, Cambridge, uh, and um, he uh, is uh, a uh, leading figure in the field. So we're very uh, grateful to him for having made the journey from Malaysia overnight, having arrived this morning, and he is uh, most welcome. Our second speaker, uh, Professor um, Frank Vogel, will be well known to those of you who perhaps know a little bit more about the the, the, what you might call the details of Islamic finance and how it actually works. Uh, Professor Vogel is currently working on a project in Saudi Arabia as principal investigator 
for the study of commercial law of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And again, um, anyone here who knows about Saudi Arabia knows um, that that is a very important topic uh, in Saudi Arabia, and it would be interesting to hear from him. Uh, prior to that, he was holder of the chair at Harvard Law School uh, and uh, has been the founding director of the law school's Islamic uh, Legal Studies program since its inception in 1994. Um, Tan Sri, without further ado, I will uh, ask you uh, kindly to open the proceedings. Thank you very much, uh, William. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon all of you and upon us. I'll just start by um, recording my thanks and appreciation, not just to Justice Blair, but to also my fellow speakers, Dr. Vogel, uh, to the organizers, LSE and Harvard Islamic Finance Project. I think I'm very honored to be here, in particular Dr. Nazim. I should also highlight the role of uh, Brother Iqbal Khan, a former speaker on this lecture series. I think uh, he was my banker, a good banker, I should add. And Iqbal, actually, I should have read the fine print. I thought I was signing up for a you know, simple panel with very little preparation. So I've had to do my homework the last uh, week or so because it's a very important and weighty topic. Uh, to LSE, I think uh, your external relations chief was giving me a bit of the history, which I should have known, but you know, clearly the Fabianistic roots, I think these are important topics. I think I, I did ask, why is it you call it LSE? Whatever happened to the politics and so on? And if politics are indeed ought to be taking center stage in the proper way rather than the improper way, then clearly the solutions of the problems of our times need to come from places like this. And I think the hallowed halls of uh, LSE, I should add, uh, some 30 years ago, I used to, and some say 30 kilograms ago, I used to cycle around here on my way to my accountancy classes. This is, you know, the early 80s, very Thatcherite years. Uh, I actually somehow, quite a capitalist accounting student, I somehow landed up in Hackney, the borough of Hackney, uh, which turned out to be actually a communist commune, believe it or not. <laughs> and this was a time when the borough of Islington was not quite gentrified yet, and there was a red flag actually on top of the borough of Islington, and Mr. Livingston was known as Red Can, and so on. And this was the of course, it's a slightly you know, different time, but LSE, I think, carries that tradition of really finding in this most capital of ideas called London and the LSE is at the heart of it. Indeed, this Islamic finance project, I think, is, is uh, certainly that. And, and in that regard, you know, I remember you know, running through in the areas around the Strand and so on. So the topic of today of Islamic finance uh, reality versus expectations, really. And, you know, uh, not to steal the thunder from Dr. Vogel, but we had a brief discussion, very brief, just before this, with, uh, with Sir William. Uh, you know, there's two ways to fix reality or expectations gap. 
you either increase the reality or you lower the expectations, quite, quite simply. Uh, however, in Sharia, which is quite precise, certainly in spirit and often in form, uh, that may not be such an easy thing to do. Reality, of course, we're dealing with a lot of uh, relative realities, really. And uh, maybe we should start, therefore, I think, at least my simple understanding as a practitioner. So Sir William introduced Kazana as a sovereign wealth fund of Malaysia. I think that's, that is correct. I think that's often the description. We are sometimes called a sovereign development fund, something which I hope to develop uh, in my short uh, opening remarks today. Uh, but perhaps, you know, I learned during all those years that Karl Marx said more or less that all property is theft. More or less. Again, I'm sure there's many Marxian scholars or whatever. There's still a few around, right? Never mind. Uh, of course, and then the classical economists and the property rights school spoke about all property, you know, is the individual's rights, somewhat hijacked even by some other form of neoclassical uh, economists and schools, and they say that all property is absolutely right, pun intended. Islam, in my simple understanding, takes a middle and moral position of the role of man as Khalifa or vice, or vice jiran of God on earth to administer his bounties, and hence all property is not theft, nor is it absolutely yours, but all property is trust. That ownership is never absolute, but only held in trust to be used for the benefit of society and to, to uphold, as best as we can, God's kingdom on earth. But also to be enjoyed and consumed in moderation and in gratitude to the provider. Of course, this moral position and the position of man to be of service to his fellow men and in servitude to God is also, is also a position held by all major faiths. So where Islam, I believe, can contribute further is that especially over the last 50 years or so, and 50 years is quite interesting, uh, I'll come back to that, it has put together a system of finance and banking that is both revivalist in the one instance, but perhaps also modernistic, and it's growing, certainly it's growing fast. But 50 years, if you think about it, uh, I was born in a little town in the peninsula of Malaysia called Malacca. There's a straits name after it, Malacca, of course. Uh, it was last year, 2011, was exactly 500 years since the advent of colonialism in Malacca and the Portuguese basically stormed and took over the city of Malacca, which heralded a super cycle of 500 years. So really, I think we need to put that in context, in, in, in that it's only over the last 40, 50 years that Islamic finance, as it's called today, has been somewhat revived in its current form. So Islam, uh, we Muslims believe, is after all uh, not the narrow preserve of Muslims, and indeed, we Muslims believe that the biggest blessing and property, back to property just now, as a resource of all, is, a prop, is Islam itself as a system and as a, as a belief system, as a guide, as an, as an arbiter and so on. And that mankind, and it's indeed described by the Quran as a mercy for mankind. So in other words, it's not the preserve of Muslims. Indeed, at the outset, uh, we ought to recognize the distinction between Islam and Muslims. Uh, I think it's an apocryphal story. I've not, actually I've had one meeting with uh, Yusuf Islam, or sometimes 
or previously known as Cat Stevens. And uh, apparently he said that I am so grateful to God that I found Islam before I met Muslims. You know, this is, uh, as a Muslim, I can attest to that. And I'm not sure which scholar, which famous scholar, I'm not a scholar, uh, you know, in visiting the West, he said, you know, I see a lot of Islam here, but very few or no Muslims. And then he goes to the East and says, a lot of Muslims, but very little Islam. So before Muslims, we get too smug about these things. I mean, let, let's be clear that uh, this is a universal issue and nobody has a monopoly on the wisdom, nor indeed the folly. On the subject of banks, and Islamic banks in particular, maybe Sir William, if you allow me, I'd I like to relate two close encounters between expectations and reality. My first encounter, so this is a slightly sentimental journey for me, coming back to speak here, um, was in 1979, the first time this young man of 18 years old came to the first time I actually ever went outside Malaysia, or outside Southeast Asia at least. So I landed up in this very nice seaside resort called Brighton. I made the fatal mistake of thinking the whole of England was like Brighton. I think I had a big shock later. But anyway, so I started and we were given a bank account. It was Barclays. I had the pleasure of telling the story actually to the, the former chairman of Barclays uh, just before they became a sovereign fund. Not the UK sovereign fund, things, another sovereign fund as we know. Uh, basically, at that time, you know, ATMs were just coming out. So we were given this nice little checkbook when you were 18 years old. So, you know, you started signing your first checks. So I still remember my first check said seven pounds only. A lot of money, a lot of money. So that was a big percentage of my income scholarship at that, month, at, at that time. So you would present that to a very nice lady at the counter, a teller. And she looked at me and she asked, how would you like your money? So here was I, my first week in England. So I looked at her back, somewhat puzzled, and I told her, well, I like it very much, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I must say, my first encounter with banks was a fairly nice one. Today, of course, as I think it was Lord Turner who said, you know, the most important innovation in, or useful innovation is ATMs. And with ATMs, you hardly kind of get to meet your friendly banker anymore, right? Like a teller, let alone a banker. Uh, and then I went back, I graduated as an accounting student, sorry, as an accountant, and as a junior accountant in uh, Malaysia, this is where the story blends into Islamic banks. Round about, I think it was about 83, 84, I think my colleagues in the crowd you know, know this much better. Bank Islam was formed as what I would call wave one. Malaysia has gone, now we're in, I would call 3G now. We need a 4G, but we're now the first, first generation was banks in the, in the 80s, creation of Bank Islam. The second generation was capital markets, sukuks, around about the 90s. And then now we're in the third generation where I think a more complete system, including Takaful and other non-banking financial institutions are being built, uh, you know, standards board and so on and so forth. We need a fourth generation, but I'll come back to that. So I was quite excited. And uh, I decided to open a bank account at Bank Islam, which was great, which was great because, you know, not just me, but many people who were literally keeping money under pillows and so on, you know, my uncles, etc., also did the same. But you know what? After about four or five years of no ATMs, you know, so I had to drive every time to Pusat Islam, which was great because, you know, you got to wait for your money, so that actually forced me to go to the library and read a little bit more about these things. 
I somehow decided that mm, this is not a very pleasant experience, so let's go parallel, which is quite metaphorical for us in Malaysia. This is what we did. We went parallel. So I reopened my bank account with Maybank, which remains one of my bank accounts today, which is Malaysia's largest bank, uh, now in big competition with CIMB, which is one of Kazana's bank. Uh, I call it my favorite four-letter bank, but never mind. And Iqbal came from my second favorite four-letter bank, but I'll stop there. So really, the point about banks is that we'll come back to that because you know, clearly Islamic banking is at the heart of some of these issues around Islamic finance, reality versus expectations. I'll explain a little bit of what Kazana is. Kazana means treasure, literally. The literal meaning of Kazana is treasure. It means treasure in Malay. It means treasure in Arabic, in its original uh, language. It means treasure in Farsi, in Urdu, in Bangladeshi, in, uh, in, in, uh, in, many, in many languages, 12 at the last count, at least for me. So it's a national treasure. We manage uh, about 40 billion US dollars. We control about 100 billion dollars worth of assets in about 60 major companies. Many are market leaders in major industries like banking, telecommunication, utilities, airports, airlines, infrastructure, highways, healthcare, and so on. About two-thirds of the value are in Malaysia. The rest are overseas, principally in Asia Pacific. Uh, I've been CEO, leading a team of about 400 people for about eight and a half years. And alhamdulillah, thank God, during that period, we've more than doubled, about two and a half, 2.6 times value, growing at about 11, 12% per annum. So basically, we do two things. We need to make money, which thankfully, enough of it, which is about 11, 12% per annum so far, compounded. And the second thing is to, to do this thing called strategic returns. That is to say, doing stuff like creation of jobs, helping to build supplier bases, developing human capital, developing a technological base, penetrate markets, build new industries, close down non-competitive industries and so on. In other words, quite dangerous and unfashionable stuff, certainly back in 2004 when I started. It's still somewhat left field today, but five years hence from the 2008 global crisis, it is a little bit more mainstream today, I would say. Uh, in, in fact, uh, about a month ago, I was on a panel in Davos on this thing called impact investing, which I, I, I never heard of until I started reading about it, and I realized that's precisely what we've been doing, or at least tried to be doing, which is to have a positive impact on society. And, uh, and this is to be distinguished with responsible investing, which essentially is about doing no harm, uh, whereas uh, impact investing is actually beyond doing no harm to try and do some good, some positive impact as well. So this idea of uh, two keys, one to make money, and the other to make strategic or even societal returns. Uh, so that, that is a tough topic because there's issues of measurement, there's issues of stakeholder management, and so on. So against that backdrop, I actually have just three uh, key points to make, uh, Sir William and members of the audience. The topic at hand talks about Islamic finance, Sharia compliance, reality expectations. The first point is we are chasing a utopia of that expectations of Sharia, which is very high, in a deeply dystopian world. I think we, we, we know that. We know that. I think this is maybe an obvious point, but I thought an important point. 
that needs to be made. And against that kind of backdrop, I think on the topic at hand, which is finance, I have to start with actually trying to figure out how do you put and overlay a system that we, that we not just Muslims, but any, any ethical-based finance, wants to go in when the genie has long come out of the bottle and this genie is multiplying in real time, which is, can be restated as the unbridled liquidity that you see today, the nature of money, the extreme financial volatility and fragility of financial systems. As we know, both the, the frequency and amplitude of financial crisis have been increasing exponentially over the last 30, 40 years, certainly from the time I stopped you know, riding bicycles around here. Uh, and, and as you know, whenever you have financial crisis, it tends to favor those with capital. These kind of things tend to be, you know, uh, they tend to be amplified and they tend to be zero-sum in nature. Someone wins, someone loses. And usually it favors those with capital, and the ones most vulnerable are the poor and the infirm. Uh, inflation, speculation, those who've had to eat, instead of three tortillas or three chapatis a day, they have to eat one tortilla or one chapati a day because, you know, food prices go up. I mean, this kind of, these are very real issues. Now, if you trace back, how do we begin to put and chase that utopia in some of this dystopian world? Fiat money creation, for example. Uh, in my days in Cambridge, we used to read, I think, Professor Robert Wade. I think he's, he's LSE, right, if I'm not mistaken. Robert Wade, uh, you know, used to write about, about this thing. Maybe he still does. I do apologize. I'm not up to date with the reading. But essentially, since Richard Nixon... Uh, you know, left the gold standard in 71 or thereabouts, you know, this has seen a rise. And if you were to plot the amount of uh, uh, creation in the real economy as perhaps proxy to trade, that's been growing in a linear fashion, 5 6% a year. But the amount of financial uh, asset creation has been growing exponentially. And my readings probably stopped about 10, 12 years ago, so I, I'm not really followed up. And, you know, I'm here as a practitioner, not, not a scholar, but you, you know this. I'm reading the mainstream today talks about the Chicago plan. I mean, anybody remembers this? This is like the Chicago plan basically says, you know, you got $1 deposit, you lend $1, essentially. So this kind of redux. The EU is talking about, I think, James Tobin is turning in his grave in a positive way. They're talking about the Tobin tax, to slow down, to put sands in the wheel of the machine that has become global finance. The Volcker Rule, the derivatives, tax scams, I think these are all coming not from some left-field ideas. These are smack in the middle of the mainstream. Martin Wolf in the FT last two Wednesdays ago, I think, talked about helicopter money going directly to, to the people rather than through you know, banks or essentially hoarding this money and corporates are hoarding this money. Malaysia did capital controls in 1998. I was proudly part of an investment bank called Solomon Smith Bunny and Solis, we were financial advisors to the government and we were completely lambasted by the world and by IMF for daring to go against the orthodoxy because we felt we needed to protect our economy against the hordes of uh, currency speculators. Of course, the counter-argument to that is actually you're doing this in order to protect vested interests and so on and so forth. 
I mean, you can argue either way, but what you can't argue is certainly the amount of unbridled liquidity is, has gone even more exponentially. The nature of money as a means, medium of exchange of real goods and not an end in itself. Again, many scholars here, I think you know, this area I'm quite sure is covered in great detail. I think at places like LSE, the intellectual basis of not just economics is being challenged, but finance and investment. For example, how do you measure returns? Currently, you know, we hire many MBAs, many good MBAs. They're still teaching this stuff around capital asset pricing model, you know, efficient frontier of investing, those kind of stuff, right? Good stuff. But, you know, if you read about it, it's basically saying debt is good, debt creates tax shields. Tax shields means you can pay less tax. See, in the utopian society, you know, it's, it's good. Eh? It's good to pay tax because you're helping people. This one is actually you're saving tax. And therefore, you know, that's how you basically make money. It's, it's, it's a very you know, win-lose situation. So, fiscal levers, uh, constraint, etc. So, therefore, against this backdrop, the first point is you know, chasing utopia in a deeply dystopian world. Now, the crux is, I think, Islamic finance with two caveats. It's my second point. It's not part of the problem, but it is not as yet, at least, part of the full solution. Uh, it has, I believe, a coherent moral-based system. Its legal form is indeed being steadily and surely being built up, and many people in here are part of that group. In its current form, as I say, it's only 50 years old or less, even, depending how you count. And therefore, you know, while it's still growing fast, it's still small, one trillion US dollars versus there's so many numbers, take a guess, because all these derivatives boom, what exactly is the number of total financial assets globally, 60 trillion, 100 trillion, who knows actually, I don't. Resilience and stability, I think Islamic finance does help with making financial systems, companies, because moderate leverage, none of this funny stuff on derivatives, and uh, you know, in some cases, make societies itself more inclusive and resilient. The two caveats are first, Islamic finance in reality today is not just a small part, I think we've already said that, but you know, a lot of it is actually focusing on the liability side, as we know, sukuks, for example, whereas the true Islamic finance in expectation form, in sharia-based form or sharia-promoting form ought to be risk-sharing rather than risk-transfer, as we all know, and hence equity finance. Uh, and then what about all the other full and beautiful range of other institutions, zakat, wakaf, hibah, and so on and so forth. Uh, Kazana is active on liability management side. We also, but perhaps for us, this may be only 20, 15, 20% of our work. By far, most of our work is on the asset side. So in other words, if we are more Islamic or more moral-based on the investing side, it has a far larger impact than what we do on the liability side. The second caveat is the risk of complacency, complacency and believing in our own propaganda, so to speak. And I think this is where we really got to be honest and go down and do that. Um, and indeed, you know, if we look at this, um, I think among Muslim nations, for example, it's a bit of a riddle that among the 56 nations of the Organization of Islamic Countries are some of the most richest per capita and some of the poorest. Uh, if you were, I think this must be God's riddle on, on, on us that, you know, if you were to spread around 
the resources. Some have very rich natural resources, some have very rich human resources, some have perhaps somewhere in between. And Malaysia is somewhere in between. Thank God we don't have that much oil. You know, and thank God uh, you know, we have enough human resource for now, at least. And, that, and therefore, the need to do exchange and actually work with each other. My third and final point is that against that backdrop, one, you're trying to chase utopia in a dystopian world. Two, I think Islamic finance has a system. It's coherent. Uh, you know, with two caveats, I think it, it is not part of the problem because it doesn't, it doesn't, I believe, contribute to the instability, but it's not quite part of the solution yet. The third point is there is a way forward, and the issue is how to implement. So I'll just share very briefly. Malaysia, as you know, under the uh, Malaysia Islamic Finance uh, Center, we've taken a pragmatic approach. I think one of the many cultural benefits of being in London all those years ago was reading your wonderful graffiti. So among one graffiti that stuck to me for life, uh, Sir William, is I read somewhere it says, let my karma run over my dogma. I think it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful saying. And in the case of, I think we take a very pragmatic approach and a very gradualist approach. And so today, MIC, uh, you know, but we do need what I call the fourth generation beyond those first three generations. Kazana does play some role. We hope we can do more. So if I say, you know, today, very briefly, social business, we are doing things like education, trust schools, you know, taking over. No, very, little, very little financial return, but big societal returns. But we can't do that for our whole portfolio, granted. We certainly do, do the do-no-harm part, avoid alcohol, gambling, and so on, bad derivatives. But we do some good in real assets, infrastructure, job creation, theme park, creative industries, etc., uh, we do try to measure, actually, the impact of uh, bottom lines. Eh? What is the, not just the market value, what is the financial value, but what is the true value, which really tries to measure, for example, environmental impact, industrial harmony, uh, you know, development of SMEs, etc. This is a project that we call Project Kronos. We're working with PwC. It's not public yet. We're doing this internally. But, you know, this will drive even more once we, we measure it more accurately. Uh, finally, maybe to highlight, you know, we've also been doing uh, various transactions that has been actually empowering. For example, we've got assets that we sell. We don't simply sell those assets. We work in a way to create what we call earn-out structures, such that entrepreneurs buy our assets. We create them. You know, they don't have capital, and we tell them, first thing, don't go to banks. Not that we're anti-banks. You know, we do invest in good banks. But we create a structure that if you work and work well, you can own this company or the controlling state within, say, five years. So a famous case in Malaysia, a company called Time.com. I think the entrepreneurial team, actually, after two and a half years, they've done very well. They've basically taken over control of this company. We're happy. We make some money, uh, and we unleash you know, some of the entrepreneurial capability. So I'll stop there by saying that, uh, in a nutshell, I think the topic is both true, but it's also hopeful. There is a gap, but I think that gap is closing. Thank you very much.
Thanks to the Department of Law um, at LSE and to Harvard's Islamic Legal Studies Program for the opportunity to speak to you today. I've been at many of these um, affairs, always in the audience, and admired the, the uh, energy and intelligence of this group. So I look forward to talking with you later. Um, today, as we see, as you know, our topic is reality and expectations as to Sharia compliance. The title suggests that there is some divergence uh, between Islamic finance and the requirements of the Sharia, both in reality and in expectations, as we pointed out. The reality, of course, in a dystopian world will never be as the ideal of Sharia. Um, so, but I'm going to leave that uh, and actually talk more on the side of expectations. In particular, I'll be raising questions such as, are we expecting the industry to achieve Sharia compliance, but expecting it to do so through means or instrumentalities that in the end will be inadequate? And because we are focusing only on those instrumentalities, are we guilty of neglecting other means to the end so that our expectations will inevitably be disappointed, even more than one would expect in a dystopian world? Uh, my own interest in Islamic finance is as a comparative lawyer uh, specializing in contemporary applications of Islamic law. So I was attracted to Islamic finance initially as a case study as a case study of applying Islamic law today. Also as a comparative lawyer, I tend to see Islamic law not just as a set of rules, but as a legal system. Today we often take Sharia as just a list of religious strictures, do's and don'ts enjoined on the faithful. But we need to remember that it always has been much more. Indeed, it was a justifying norm for the day-to-day -day legal and constitutional systems of myriad states covering much of the known world for more than a millennium. In fact, I'd like to refer back to that history of Sharia application today and ask, does that history have any lessons for us today when we ask about how to achieve Sharia compliance in the field of finance? So let me start with three quick preliminaries. Oops. Still being trained on this, I think. Hmm. Should we fall back on the, fall back on the other method? First, some basic facts about Sharia, which many of you will find very, you know very well. Uh, some basic facts about fiqh, or Islamic jurisprudence. I'll be using this term fiqh, Islamic jurisprudence. And some ideas about the relevance of Islamic legal and economic history. So as my first preliminary, uh, some basic points about Sharia. First, Sharia is not only a code of law, a set of legal rules, what we ordinarily understand by law. For Muslims, the Sharia is revealed in the Quran and Sunnah is a divine template for all of human life for all time. Sharia reveals as to the economic, commercial, and financial aspects of life, not only specific legal rules, but also ethical rules for individuals, as well as objectives, guidelines, and institutions for the larger economy and society. Second, Sharia addresses not only individual believers, but also collective groupings of human beings, communities, societies, states, and the Muslim nation, even human, humanity at large, as Tantri Asman mentioned. The teachings of the Sharia on trade, finance, and economy are profoundly intertwined with all of its principles and laws for other aspects of life, 
such as ritual observance, individual morality, family life, community, society, law, constitution, and governance. A third basic point about Sharia, uh, we often equate it with the jurisprudence of scholars, the fiqh. Muslim scholars over the centuries have worked hard to discern from deep study of the revelations of the Quran and Sunnah what God's commands are as to human actions. Their work product is the fiqh. While sharia is, by definition, the perfect divine law revealed in the Quran and Sunnah, fiqh, which means understanding, is the product of human striving to understand the sharia legally. It is, and it is acknowledged to be liable to, be, to, be, to imperfections. Indeed, on most legal questions, there is a diversity of views among the scholars. Now, as a second preliminary, some basic points on fiqh. First, fiqh emerged from private scholars and was not laid down by the state. Indeed, it took some centuries for it to be unequivocally adopted by the state as its law. And until then, perhaps the state, not the scholars, had the upper hand in determining what Islamic law was. Given its origin in the private sphere, even now uh, one can see how fiqh focuses more on the concerns of the private and civil sphere and has much less to say about all collective and public aspects of society, including the state, except in general principles. Even today, one can observe how fiqh offers detailed provisions chiefly for personal matters such as cleanliness, lawful foods, religious observance of prayer and fasting, and civil law matters such as marriage, inheritance, property, and obligations from contract and tort. But beyond this, for social relations, criminal law, administration, tax, governance, and international law, fiqh contains far fewer provisions. Second, as to the public sphere, and indeed, indeed even the communal or collective aspects of life, fiqh largely delegates authority to decision makers other than the scholars, giving them a largely free hand as long as Sharia criteria are respected. These delegations with their conditions, one might call fiqh constitutional principles. In other words, because of these fiqh constitutional principles, there are many other persons besides fuqaha, or fiqh scholars, who are charged to implement sharia, and first among these is this ruler or state. Now let us note two of the most prominent of these constitutional principles. The first, uh, which concerns the state, is that of siyasa shari'iyah, meaning governance in accordance with the sharia. This doctrine delegates to those in charge of public functions authority to act in their own discretion subject to two main conditions. The two conditions are first, that their actions must serve the general welfare, the maslaha of the ummah, and second, that their actions must not offend fundamental rules and principles of sharia. We can note that the resulting method of application of sharia is very different from the method of the scholars who develop fiqh. The method of scholars relies first and foremost on the interpretation of texts, while those exercising siyasa rely first and foremost on utility and consult text, texts only to avoid fundamental contradiction with them. <clears throat> now, a second, concept, um, a second constitutional principle 
on which FIC relies for regulating many forms of collective action and for adapting its age-old rulings to time and circumstance is custom and customary laws. Sorry, I'm at the bottom of this page, yeah. Uh, as, for, uh, as was the case for Siasa Sharia, custom is acceptable only if it does not contradict basic Sharia principles. Unfortunately, these days, when most of the system of Sharia has been dismantled during the colonial era and systems framed on Western laws ushered in, it is too easy to forget the full scope of the Sharia and to focus too single-mindedly on those parts of the fiqh that concern individuals in their private lives, the fiqh for worship and transactions, fiqh al-ibadat and fiqh al-mu'amalat. It is also easy to forget mechanisms for the determination and enforcement of laws under Sharia other than that of scholars advising individuals. So my second preliminary, um, the third actually, is the relevance of all this for Islamic legal history. I mean the relevance of Islamic legal history for Islamic finance. Uh, my interest, personal interest in how Islamic law has been applied has always led me to ask why, if we are going to study deeply the fiqh of certain centuries, generally the fiqh that we're talking about applying is only from four or 500 years ago, why, uh, if we're going to study that fiqh, we don't also study deeply the systems of application that those scholars had in mind for the t at the time when they wrote the fiqh? What means did the fiqh scholars themselves develop or condone and exploit as they sought to have their rulings enforced? Will we be able to understand the fiqh or apply it without doing that? Today's lecture is really an exploration of the potential of such an approach for understanding how Islamic law regulates finance. So let us start with this very complicated slide. This gives you kind of a chart of how Islamic law did regulate Islamic finance. I won't cover all of it, but I'm sort of layered things sort of from the micro to the macro. Uh, at the first level is that of individual scholars advising individuals on their financial transactions and driving the rules from the Quran and Sunnah and so forth. Second level is that of civil society, still very importantly uh, framed by Islamic law, particularly in the notion of zakat and al-qaf, which are the pious foundations which had a very pervasive role in social arrangements in historic times. Um, often these institutions were run by scholars. Uh, then you have you saw the business and the markets, uh, where you had you know, a certain degree of uh, custom. Also the ethics of merchants uh, were largely applied by them, by those particular professions or trades. Uh, and in those, perhaps, standards even higher in some respects than those of FIP were being enforced by the by merchants themselves. Then you have fiscal, monetary policy, administration, and so forth being run through the administration, the administrative bodies of the state. Uh, custom and ruler decree, and ruler decree finally, which is the power of siyasa sharia to issue decrees in the interest of utility. Okay, many layers, many different methodologies for understanding Sharia, and many different actors, not just Islamic scholars. So now I'd like to 
go back, take up one by one the stakeholders of, of contemporary Islamic finance and say, do they have any analogs in this historic pattern for the application of Sharia? Um, so each one I'm going to look at a level and basically going from micro to macro, the methodology applied today and the historic analog. Okay, now the first stakeholders in Islamic finance, the founders, in fact, were those of the Islamic economists <coughs> in the 50s and 60s, uh, who were using a combination of modern economics and sort of a profound study of, of the Islamic law, generating from it principles. Um, of course, historically, there were great thinkers in the economic field in the Islamic world, Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Khaldun, and so forth. Uh, but also, I'd like to mention briefly... Uh, something that falls within fiqh itself, which is the, the notion of maqasid al-sharia, uh, <clears throat> which is a, uh, a theory of uh, extremely powerful legal methodological doctrine, first stated comprehensively in the 14th century. It calls on scholars to conduct a profound study of all the developed corpus of the Islamic fiqh, seeking to identify by induction what are the purposes or objectives for which God revealed this law. That's what maqasid means. Once these objectives are known, the theory claims, from then on scholars should, whenever they are de deriving a fiqh ruling from the revealed text, choose that interpretation which, according to both their reasoning and a consideration of the consequences of that ruling, best advances God's objectives. This theory goes far to shift from an approach to legislation focused on interpreting text toward one focusing on human reasoning and at the empirical, empirical consequences of legislation. Next level is the familiar one of Islamic finance today. Um, <clears throat> familiar with that. I'd like to point out a few characteristics of it brought out by the historical comparison. One of the most striking things, uh, most often I've forgotten or misunderstood, about old Islamic legal systems was the degree to which lawmaking, even law enforcing, was privatized, so to speak. Much legislation was accomplished by scholars in their private capacities. Even adjudication was done by scholars who, in the law they applied, took their cues from other scholars and not from the state. Today, Muslims are, of course, familiar with such private lawmaking, but only in their private lives, by, by and large, personal morality, where, while in practically all Muslim legal systems, the state doesn't interfere. One of the most interesting aspects of Islamic finance is that it revives the old system for applying sharia in an area outside of private religiosity. One can note how it would not be easy for a scholar who is advising individuals on their commercial transactions, for example, to always take into account any macro perspective, such as the macro consequences of the ruling for the general utility. How easily can he tell an individual that while Sharia technically allows a transaction, he should forego it for the general good or for the long-term benefit of the economy and so forth, or change the terms of that deal? His focus is instead, the scholar's focus is instead, is on the micro level of, of particular circumstances, disputes, transactions. At this level, he would also not be particularly competent to decide on macro considerations. As we shall see, scholars did concern themselves at macro levels, but in roles other than making decisions and giving advice on the level of individual transactions. 
Another point, one of the most basic principles of fiqh is that in matters of mu'amalat, the original ruling is permissibility, alibaha, i.e. acts are permitted unless specifically forbidden by sharia. If they are permitted, mubah, uh, if those acts are to be restricted or forbidden on the grounds of some sort of utility or maslaha, it is not ordinarily the scholar's role to do so while advising individuals, but rather the role of the state acting on siyasa sharia principles, which you recall were based on maslaha. Let us stop here to note that every one of the characteristics just noticed also apply to scholars advising individual Islamic on individual Islamic transactions. Indeed, for every one of these aspects of their work, which actually reflect an age-old pattern of application of sharia, they have been strongly criticized. For example, that they shouldn't be deciding matters that have such a huge macro impact, uh, that their focus on particular circumstances is too micro. They should broaden their, their views that they should have the skills that would enable them to consider macro, uh, macro goals, objectives, and help achieve them, uh, that they're too prone to permissiveness. They focus only on what is permitted, ja'iz or halal, rather than on what better serves the Islamic economy or advances Muslim society, uh, that the scholars should encourage or even require the Islamic institutions they advise to serve macro goals, like public utility, cumulative consequences, and so forth. Certainly, these criticisms point to real problems with the modern system of Sharia governance. The question arises, how did old Islamic legal systems fill these gaps, deal with these problems? So more about that in a moment. But a brief comment on this, on the debate about the role of scholars. Um, the, it just, the, as I've suggested with my coverage so far, these critics may be focusing too much on the micro end of the Islamic Sharia, of the Sharia system where the scholars function, and too little on that system's more macro levels to be discussed next. It may be too much to hope that by simply applying fiqh al-mu'amalat, or the rules of commercial transactions, and commercial banking and insurance would be enough to usher in the grand Islamic economic system. Certainly, Islamic legal systems in the past didn't assume so, as we shall see. So, resuming the list of stakeholders, broadening out from that of the scholars, we come to um, interaction with other parts of the private sector, lawyers, convention, banks, rating agencies, financial markets, and so forth. Now, what are the norms applying in that sphere? Largely, those are the, there are those of the conventional system. Uh, <clears throat> perhaps there were analogs in past Islamic legal system to the influence now being exerted by conventional private sector institutions and practices on Islamic finance, such as the common trade practices developed in the Mediterranean of medieval times. In that area, the flow may have been the other direction, Islamic law and practices influencing Europe. But for our purposes, a more important question uh, might be, <clears throat> at least outside the international sphere, in the home countries of Islamic banks, are the various functions being performed by non-Islamic entities, conventional banks, law firms, and so forth, supplanting functions once part of the old Sharia system that supported and, co and complemented the application of the fiqh commercial law, the fiqh al-mu'amalat. 
To what extent should reliance on outside systems of law, accountability, and finance give place one day to similar systems framed around Sharia? Is Islamic finance in danger of becoming just a sort of embodied, disembodied algorithm, a set of special consumer-dictated restrictions that otherwise is an indistinguishable part of the, other, the conventional global legal and financial system? One has to ask, if Sharia were taken as the basis for systems of accountability, financial design, dispute settlement, would the systems that result be significantly different from the conventional ones? Next level, uh, industrial organizations. The next layer of stakeholders represents a very impressive development in Islamic finance, a proliferation, especially over the last decades, of a host of new self-regulating international organizations, IOFI, IIFM, IFSB, CIBAFI. The historical analogies to them would be to the customs of the marketplace and the very important phenomenon of guilds of merchants and, and trades, and as to scholars, the schools of law or the madhahib, scholars also self-regulated historically. As to the industry organizations like IOFI, IFSB, the question on my mind is whether these organizations are too content to leave the question of Sharia compliance entirely to the scholars, supplementing the scholars' criteria with criteria taken only from convention, the conventional industry, regulatory and self-regulatory. Or are they also, or instead, taking consciously the responsibilities of like institutions in the past to uphold and enforce Sharia norms, and doing so at a more macro level than the scholars did? If the industry is to uphold higher ethical standards, better protect customers, or more broadly advance communal or social interests, shouldn't achieving that be the responsibility of these organizations more than the scholars? And if Islamic finance is now at a critical turning point, as many claim, shouldn't assessment of the state of the industry, its overall self-judgment, and its plans for the future be a task of crucial importance of entities at this level of the industry? Now let's look briefly at the self-regulation of scholars. Fixed scholars in the past evolved very elaborate systems of self-regulation. The most important was, institution was the legal school or medheb. These schools were not only bodies of learning or corpuses of rules, but also living institutions. Organized within them at any time or place were informal hierarchies of scholars, some more elite, others less so. Those at the highest levels served as leaders of society in many ways and often represented both sharia and the population in the councils of the ruler. The high-level scholars would issue fatwas, which strongly influenced lesser scholars and judges, and moreover could exert pressure on other scholars by way of disciplining them. Such elite scholars were in the best position to consider the larger needs of society and the legal system, and in that sense, take general utility in the objections of the sharia into account when issuing their fatwas, which had near legislative effect. By means of these schools of law, the scholars were able to make their scholarly law stable and predictable enough, but still flexible and responsive to social change and needs, so that they could serve the needs of their societies for legislation in the civil sphere. They thus were able to keep the state, which was without doubt interested in having a stable civil law, from interfering to curtail their legislative uh, prerogatives. 
Okay, continuing, next, another part of the chart. Um, we have the regulators of financial institutions. There's a fascinating uh, analog to them historically, the Muhtasib. Muhtasib was an officer charged to police public places to enforce fiqh rulings, public morality, as well as market regulations and standards fixed by custom or by government decree under the Siasa Sharia standard. Uh, note that by deploying the muhtasib in the market, states of the past did not simply rely on mar- merchants to exercise their ethics, they enforced them. In other words, state enforcement extended beyond the rules of fiqh and the reach of the courts and upheld other standards, both moral and temporal. And then as to a second aspect of state enforcement, qada, or adjudication. Courts enforcing finance contracts were staffed by fiqh scholars in those days. And that's rarely true anywhere today, except perhaps in the Gulf, particularly Saudi Arabia. And those courts applied the entirety of fiqh rules on contract, liability, damages, evidence, burden of proof. This is true today probably only in Saudi Arabia. Today, most large Islamic finance transactions specify enforcement in the U.S. or U.K. So there are, um, I won't go into the next two levels at all. Just let you see them. You know, there. These things are perhaps yet to be developed in any meaningful way, uh, certainly with proper institutions. And then finally, the government, uh, the emphasis again, siyasa sharia. Much law began from the top, supplementing, filling the gaps in sharia through the authority of the ruler. What role are the states playing in the advancement of Islamic law, of Islamic finance? So some basic conclusions from this survey. Too often, Islamic finance, the role for Sharia is understood as merely the application of fiqh al-mu'amalat to the acts of private individuals and institutions at micro levels. While too much of the rest, the remaining, the complement, is simply to be decided according to conventional standards. But fiqh al-mu'amalat was written as only part of a larger legal system that implemented the economic teachings of Sharia at other levels, macro as well as micro. Some other basic conclusions. Former Islamic legal systems assigned roles to scholars besides delivering micro compliance, involving them also at higher or macro levels of legislation, regulation, and policy. And actors other than scholars performed essential economic sharia roles, policy, administration, regulation, and enforcement, pursuant to delegation from the fiqh. They didn't apply scholarly methods, but were influenced by Sharia principles and by the advice of scholars. And finally, the full evaluation and implementation of masalih, utilities, and maqasid, divine objectives, demands not only the textual perspective, but also macro and temporal knowledge and expertise, which private scholars usually do not command. And similarly, any standards beyond the scope of a private fatwa, such as sharia, ethical, prudential, or welfare-enhancing standards, need to be articulated and enforced by private and public entities, besides scholars, uh, who perform merely advisory roles. 
Thank you very much. Well, now, traditionally, on these occasions, we have questions. And uh, I want to um, uh, give as many of you as possible the opportunity to ask questions. Can I please ask this? Just state your name first, and then, please, a very short question. Uh, please forgive me if, if I interrupt you. There's no discourtesy intended, but I am keen that um, people do have the opportunity to ask questions if they want to. So I'm going to take a few uh, uh, questions. Uh, I'm going to st start there. Now, uh, who else would like to ask some, que uh, some questions? If you put the microphone there, then next there, and then next there. So one, uh, two, and three. Yeah, and p uh, p please brief and your name. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Uh, my Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. alaikum and good evening to all of you. Uh, my name is Harul Nizam. I am from the Accounting and Auditing Organization for Financial Institution, or IOFI, uh, one of the bodies that um, Dr. Vogel kindly mentioned uh, in his speech, and thank you for that. Uh, IOFI, as uh, most people know, uh, issue standards on accounting, auditing, uh, sharia, etc. For the accounting and sharia standards that we have developed and issue, I suppose by necessity uh, those standards would only need to cover or uh, the current remit of those standards would be at the micro level, uh, as, as, as you would put it. But we appreciate and uh, we share your views that they are, there is scope for us to look into the macro level uh, of, of Islamic finance. And to that end, perhaps... Uh, the governance standards that we've issued and the governance standards that standard-setting bodies like IFSB uh, have also issued uh, could potentially cover that. To that end, uh, and before I, before I finish, uh, IOFI uh, has actually issued a governance standards on corporate social responsibilities where we have actually recommended Islamic banks to put in place policies on CSR activities, including on... Uh, impact investments, as, as Tansri uh, put it, uh, and to do disclosures on those policies too. Thank you very much. A question uh, from Aofi there. Uh, now, though, uh, there was, uh, I think I said there, the man in the um, red, red shirt. Thank you. If you just introduce yourself, sir. Thank you. Hi. Um, my name's Nizam. I'm a student here at LSE. Uh, my question is aimed at Mr. Mokhtar. You mentioned that uh, we need a new 4G version of Islamic finance. Um, could you elaborate on how that version would look and what are the obstacles to get to that stage? Thank you very much. And one last question before the speakers get the chance to, uh, uh, to respond. Thank you to the um, speakers for some excellent presentations. Uh, my name is Haris Irfan from European Islamic Investment Bank. Um, I'd like the gentleman's advice, please. I have a problem. Um, I'm an insider, as you, as you can see. I'm a little bit overdressed for the occasion you know, on a university campus. I'm suffering from cognitive dissonance. What I mean is I have two conflicting emotions in my head. On the one hand, I think I'm doing something noble, moral, socially beneficial by working for an Islamic bank and in the Islamic finance industry. But on the other hand... I'm concerned that 
My day-to-day activities are about reverse engineering conventional financial products. So can the gentleman advise me, which way is this industry going? Is it going in the right direction? Or should I, Brighton sounds like a nice town, uh, maybe I should open a cafe on the seaside and, uh, and quit being a banker. Excellent questions. Thank you. Now, I'm going to ask Hans three first, and if we could keep the answers relatively brief so I can uh, get another question. Yeah, I think my first profession was actually as an accountant. I would probably fail all my exams you know, without qualification now. Uh, they asked me to address the World Congress of Accountants in KL two years ago. I basically brought a little elephant. I said, this is the elephant in the room, but it's not the only one. <laughs> uh, you know, this, uh, after that, the Sri Lankan Association invited me, but that's another story. You know why? Because I think our fee, if I can challenge, not just our fee, but we, you know, the current true and fair, all this mark-to-market, it just doesn't work. Okay? We, we in the trade, investors, we don't look at accounting statements too much. You have to look at it because that's the one that makes the newspapers. Because in the old days, what was true was historical cost, as you know. Whether it was fair, you know, something else. But today, you're not sure what's true anymore because they basically take mark-to-market accounting, as you know. And mark-to-market, we talk about all that market uh, you know, volatility and so on and so forth. And you certainly don't know what is fair. But anyway, that's my beef with, I think, another dystopia. 4G, uh, Nizam, I think the... Frankly, we're searching. I think you can, where, where those, those streams are pointing to it, among other things, as I said, first generation, at least Malaysia chose the path of get, getting into Islamic banks. So my five-year wait for an ATM card, I think today, by the way, to be fair, Bank Islam has run very, very nicely. Kazana Alumnas is the CEO, Datuk Zukri. They're doing a great job, but... That was first generation. I mean, some may argue fractional reserve banking, we shouldn't be in there, etc., etc. But, you know, we took, as I say, a pragmatic path, the karma over the dogma, if you like. The second generation was we finance a lot of our infrastructure today, world-class infrastructure by creation of Sukuk, 70% Islamic refinance, uh, etc. I think Iqbal and others, I think, were part of that, that journey. The third G, as I call it, is really the ones that we're seeing now which is, you know, broadening this, you get, you know, pawn shops. So the whole, I think Dr. Vogel, you know, very scholarly exposition, the completeness of the Islamic system. So can you actually do something without being shumul, without being complete? You know, parts of it. You know, obviously, you're going to get, you know, lower levels equilibrium at the start. I think that's happening. Fourth G, I'm struggling or grappling rather, I think we're thinking about, we are by mandate, we have to make money, financial returns, but we you know, actively go out and figure out you know, how to do strategic returns, jobs, economic multipliers, that kind of thing. But I struggle sometimes how to do societal returns, both in Malaysia and, and overseas. A delegation came from Palestine, for example, two weeks ago in my office. And of course, we all feel for this. Eh? But if I were to send one of our listed companies into Palestine to do roads or cement factories, their share price within a week you know, is probably going to tumble because this is the kind of risk you know, the fund manager in Connecticut or whatever may, may, may not appreciate. I think this, this is a problem. Where there, there are gaps. I think there are very clearly there are gaps. And also we do CSR we, we, you know, through our CSR work. We help Palestinians. We help you know, other places as well. 
Uh, so I think there are gaps on, so not just in Palestine, but even in our home ground. You know, how do we make sure there's more social inclusion, for example? You know? so, but there's some of the stuff around social impact bonds or social impact sukuks. You know, how do you, do you manage that? These are all the kind of good financial innovation which the likes of you know, Professor Schiller at Yale, I think Rob Schiller says, which I find very interesting, I mean, he writes about this very eloquently, there should be more, not less, financial innovation in the wake of the post-financial, of course, of the right time. I think Islamic finance, based on this principle, is actually perfectly suited. The world is screaming for this, right? And I think, uh, you know, we, we are a sovereign fund. I'm going, you know, we, we have a very active group with other sovereign funds at various stages, right? We want to do this together. Finally, cognitive dissonance. I think some of the answer is perhaps linked to some of the earlier comments, which is, I think, you know, moving, I mean, it had to start somewhere, and it started on the liability side, but I think the true value has to be on the asset side. Something that I think someone like Iqbal has moved from the liability side into the asset side as a declaration here. Kazana Invest is one of the founding investors of Fajar Capital. You know, because I truly think you, know, you, you will make change. To me, 80-20 rule, 80% is actually on, on, on managing the asset side. Thank you. Um, Dr. Vogel? Briefly, um Yes, IOFI is moving into this area. I think they should get far more support. And they, uh, I'm always somewhat alarmed when IOFI uh, turns for its criteria solely to scholars. I think we, obviously they need to broaden their, their focus. And also when it turns solely to a conventional standard, which may be absolutely blameless, and say in the case of CSR. But the thing is, there should be more support for OFI, more moral and material support, such that it can undertake this, you know, at a more Sharia-based and more Sharia-based fashion. Because I mean, I'm advocating that your role is essential, and all the calls for the criticisms of Islamic finance, many of them reflect a need for institutions like OFI to take a more muscular role at a higher level. Uh, and then, as for cognitive dissonance, I think um, that's sort of what I was trying to underline. Um, Sharia at your level operating within a bank doing financial engineering is micro work and it is governed by a permissive atmosphere uh, and a need to you know, make money by the way uh, and then there's this other sphere where you're expecting as you said noble moral and socially beneficial outcomes that largely is outside the realm of, that you're operating in now but you could as a member of such a bank with others like Iqbal Khan and so forth, call for more uh, activity at a higher level, higher and higher levels, where those sorts of things are actually engaged. It isn't actually, I think, we can and only turn to the Islamic finance institutions to accomplish this, and certainly in their own daily work. Thank you very much. Now there's a, a, a question from a lady out there first, please, and there's a gentleman there, and uh, I'll... Uh, Take the gentleman in the front, and then I'll come, come back to you. So those, those three, please, starting up there. Thank you. Yes. You, you, I don't think your mic's on. All right, we'll, we'll have the, the question there while you're getting the mic up and running. Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to, um, to say that I, I, I still struggle to ascertain what is Islamic about Islamic banking. And I, I think I'll even go as far as to say that it doesn't seem to go any further 
than Arabic language terminology banking. And I would actually go as far as to say that it's perhaps verging on fraud to the, to the believers. Second point I wanted to, to do is um, say is to correct what something that Professor Vogel said. It, it wasn't the colonial powers that dismantled um, an, is, an Islamic uh, economic system under the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire itself, during the Tanzimat, that realized that it couldn't compete with the European powers unless it uh, uh, reformed and adopted um, um, capitalism, basically, and changed its commercial laws to fit. Well, thank you very much. That's an interesting uh, analogy. Um, yes. So, yeah, uh, over there, please. You'll need to stand up so you can get the uh, microphone. Uh, good evening. My name is Dr. Ali Kurshid. In light of the complexity of fiqh al-mu'amalat, as Dr. Frank described, do we still need Sharia scholars in the level of the banks and institutions uh, who become an expert in rubber stamping? Or do we need them just on the level of the regulators and the central bank or the government? Thank you very much. And uh, there's a question up there. Um, please, madam, is it working now? Hello. Yeah. Would you like to stand yes. up, perhaps? Thank you. Hi, my name is Nura. I'd like to ask if, um, in your opinion, to what extent do you think that a separate regulatory framework for Islamic finance is important, especially in the case of UK? Thank you. Thank you. Three excellent questions. And maybe we switch the order this, this time. Dr. Vogel? Okay, sure. Um, well, what is Islamic about Islamic banking? Um, is it only Arabic, using Arabic terms? I mean, looked at as a lawyer, there are definitely differences. Uh, you can, by the way, point to tax arrangements in the United States, which exploit also form uh, and have different legal consequences and are given different tax consequences as well. It's very typical of lawyers. And again, I'm calling these financial experts, these Islamic scholars at this level, lawyers. It's typical of lawyers to use both form and substance. It's also typical of legislators to need, periodically, I mean, Justice Blair could explain. I mean, form and substance are always in contention in law. You rely entirely on form, you often do injustice. If you do only, you attempt justice, there's no predictability, no order. It's chaotic in the, in the courtroom. So it's just, you know, well, and religions in particular rely heavily on form, ritual itself. So, you know, it's unfair to say it's, you know, it's taking too much of an economic sort of x-ray of these institutions rather than looking at them legally and religiously. But on the other hand, uh, I'm advocating that, you know, this constant re-engineering of, of, the, of the conventional transaction uh, for maladies like, for example, if you sign it as two separate agreements, it's valid. If you sign it as a single agreement, it's not. You know, these mere formalistic things are not satisfying the customer these days, perhaps because they take a modern perspective. So if we are to lead away from that, it isn't, I, don't, I don't think the inertia in the financial institutions is in that direction, momentum. The momentum has got to change. Who's going to change it? Uh, as for colonial, absolutely. I, I, I tried to say it was during the colonial episode period. Ottoman, yeah, definitely the Ottoman times. These modern innovations, these modern commercial innovations were hot stuff. You had to play the game or lose. So naturally, they adopted them. 
Um, Dr. Ali pointed out, should we have Islamic scholars? Yes, I think just as in an Islamic society, you have fat muftis on the street corner, and or muftis advising merchants. You also have muftis advising the muhtasib, and sometimes muhtasib was a merchant, or was a scholar. You have scholars advising the muhtasib, and they often were scholars and needed to be. And you have scholars advising the head of state, or the sitting on the diwans of the state. So scholars need, well, the problem is we don't have that old hierarchy. You know, uh, Qaradawi perhaps is, you know, heading up toward those higher levels, for example, and there are scholars, Taki Usmani in Pakistan. That's what we need. And they should be disengaged from the lower levels and allowed to take a different perspective, a Muqasid perspective. Thank you very much, Tansri. Um, I mean, I, I can share maybe one small story on Islamic finance. I think we, when I first came into this office eight-odd years ago, uh, we looked at monetizing some of our assets through what became known as exchangeable sukuks. I had a problem, a long discussion with some Islamic bankers about it being LIBOR-based, for example. And as you said, putting labeling, putting packages, or reverse engineering some of the conventional products. I said, don't come back until you show me how we can move away from LIBOR and link a, a true profit and a risk-sharing formula which is linked to the underlying. Uh, it was our telecommunication company. And they came back six months later, and frankly, my team came in and we worked together and we issued the world's first Islamic exchange. important for us. Without that, you know, we couldn't actually do it in a way that we felt uh, was uh, correct. We could, of course, list, in fact, we have done that before on, on a conventional basis, uh, but I think that particular transaction, in the end, it was linked to the, to the uh, uh, dividend yield of the underlying. I don't, I don't know what to call that, innovation or, or what. It certainly facilitated. Later, we did you know, multiple sukuks each time, for example, bringing uh, you know, Gulf money into the so-called Silk Road again into China, to some of our investments in China and so on and so forth. I think just Blair, with permission, I think we've brought some little brochures of the work we do in Islamic finance. As I said, I'm the first to say we're not at 4G yet. I think uh, you know, it's trying to emphasize the point that this was the journey moving forward. So the point on, uh, on uh, you know, uh, again, not, not really my area, but I, I would say working with scholars, whether it is in the area of uh, structures and so on and so forth. We work as issuers, as investors. We look to them. Uh, and uh, I think the, the relationship between ulama, the scholars, and I believe the term umara, right, the, the leadership, I think this is, I think, a very important relationship that you know, one has the power and the other has you know, the, the scholarship that you like. I think that has to move in tandem. And you know, the point about those structures need to be rebuilt. Us in the commercial world, I think Skazana is a sovereign fund. We are you know, somewhat juxtaposed quite delicately between the state and the markets. And therefore, you, know, you have to act judiciously all the time. You, know, mm. you try to. And often, you know, finding the right guidance based on you know, someone else has gone through a lot of these issues throughout. Right? Uh, and uh, it's, it's in the end for us in Malaysia, of course, it's a multicultural, multiracial society, which is even better in a way because that's a true test of whether this thing is truly universal, mm -hmm. you know, the applicability of it. Thank you.
Thank you very much for those answers. Now, there was someone who had a question over there. I've also had a note um, saying that uh, if, if LSE students have questions, then they're uh, particularly welcome to um, ask them. Uh, so there's a, a question there. Do I have any other questions? Question um, there and the, uh, a, a question up there. Uh, and uh, la lastly, a question at the back there. So we'll take four questions. And uh, um, uh, thank you very much. Hi, um, my name is Kamal Hussain. Uh, uh, I'm a practicing solicitor and associate lecturer in Islamic law in Birkbeck. Um, question I have is, uh, isn't our focus on Islamic finance too narrow? In, your, in Dr. Vogel's introduction, we talked about the, uh, some basic points about Islamic law, that it is actually a holistic uh, system, and all the, the sharia is much wider than Islamic finance even. So therefore, everything is in, uh, interconnected. So trying to apply or come up with structures from Islamic finance in a dystopian world is what's causing this tension between Islamic ideals, i.e. utopia, and dystopia. So shouldn't our focus be uh, on a more holistic approach in terms of uh, the rest of uh, the aspects of Sharia uh, in order to realize the Islamic financial uh, system? Thank you very much indeed. There's a question here in uh, the front, if we could have the microphone. Thank you very much. Fazal Said, a business and finance lawyer with an Islamic finance focus. Um, my question is very related to what the gentleman has just asked. Um, Dr. Vogel has so eloquently highlighted the difference between the two paradigms, macro and micro. And uh, building on that, the topic of what is the expectation and what is the current practice Current practice, as we know, is far from ideal. Current practices, financing cash flows. Current practices, 80% of the banks, liquidity management through commodity marabaha. None of that is what Islamic finance is really, really sought, seeks to achieve. So what are the expectations? What is the 4G that Tansri Azman mentioned earlier? Thank you very much indeed. No, my, my, I haven't finished, sorry. sorry. So that expectation, therefore, in my opinion, would, would have been Islamic finance impact investing with a view to making a real difference, being a game changer at the ground level, encouraging enterprise, creating jobs in the society. And uh, if I may put it another way, a deployment of resources where the need is paramount in the society, building bridges, uh, water treatment facilities, Bill Gates, a third world toilets project, for example, would fall in that category. So the question is, what are the impediments for moving to the 4G if we know this is what the goal is? Why aren't we speeding up the process and getting there if that is really what Islamic finance ought to be achieving? Thank you. And uh, a question up there? Good evening, Dr. Ramsey, Muslim Council of Britain. Uh, thank you for an excellent speech. Uh, with reference to Murabaha, some of the scholars, some of the Islamic scholars, are of opinion that the Islamic loan and mortgages are not complying with the Sharia law. What is your opinion and your answer to that, please? Thank you. Thank you, and uh, we have time for one last question at the 
the back there and it's number four. Thank you. My name is Lokman Zakaria, LSP uh, fellow in Harvard Law School. Uh, I want to direct my question to Frank uh, concerning the issue of muhtasib. You mentioned about muhtasib and their role in Islamic finance, especially in this contemporary uh, financial uh, system. What are the functions of uh, muhtasib, particularly in Saudi Arabia or in any country that practices Islamic finance to the core? And I wonder whether we have anything like that in the system today, whether it is a tattoo war that is voluntary, muhtasib, or official one. What have you seen during your research? Thank you very much indeed. So, uh, Tansri, maybe first, uh, first you now. Yeah, I'll try to answer some at least. The, the focus being too narrow, uh, yes. But as I said, the, you know, if you look at the gradual nature of development, if you, if you believe that the Islamic finance industry, as it, as it is now, I mean, in the overall sweep of history is still relatively young, notwithstanding it's growing fast and small. Uh, you know, it's probably not even, I don't know, 2 3% of, probably under 2% of global financial assets. And, and Muslim countries themselves actually have much larger pools of money that are not going into Islamic finance. I mean, uh, Malaysia, you know, we talk about new issuance, 70% and so on, but we have Kazana Group, we have a lot of presence in Indonesia, for example, the largest Muslim country. And uh, I think Islamic banking is probably under 2% of total system assets. Uh, so I think that gradual approach is happening. I mean, I ended my, my little presentation by saying, yes, there's a gap, but that gap is narrowing. And uh, you know, I, I, I truly believe, and we are practicing, which leads up to the next question on the, the so-called 4G. And the so-called 4G, I think, uh, impact investing is not so odd, and it's not being practiced just by Islamic finance exponents. On the same panel as me, I mean, there's this guy, great guy, one of our our head of India is actually joining. Leapfrog Investments is doing micro insurance, you know, a form of financial inclusion in in, uh, in India. In a big way, another gentleman from San Francisco is doing, uh, you know, other things at the micro level. You know, we're doing macro stuff, big stuff, so-called, uh, with companies that are doing micro stuff. So, so, but I think one problem I have, and maybe this is a good call. I think there's a Nobel Prize to be won by some scholar, maybe from the LSE, to go and debunk this notion. If you can, if you can somehow blend one number to measure instead of internal rate of return and stuff like that, right, the kind of financial metric, if you can really blend what is this efficient frontier in terms of impact of or true value investing, right, based on the Makassid al-Sharia and so on and so forth, I think there's a Nobel Prize to be won. It must be, because the world is screaming for this now, etc. Um, I'm not qualified to talk about Tassib, except it sounds very much like my regulator, so... Stop that. Thank, you. Thank you very much. Dr. Vogel. Okay, briefly, um, yeah, as to Islamic finance being too narrow, um, you might say that it's the success of the Islamic finance industry that you're asking that question. You're, you know, the, the question is meaningfully posed. Um, that my point today is really to say one shouldn't demand too much of the industry as it now stands and demand that it actually, you know, broaden to other and, and uh, entities that have not taken responsibility for Islamic finance so far and have let it 
be the symbol of Islamic economics and Islamic social justice and economic justice and everything else, I should now step up to the plate as well. Uh, and you as a consumer, potential consumer, should also do so. Uh, Fazal Said is uh, also saying, you know, obviously they need to broaden your objectives with Islamic finance, have more socially aware forms of investment. But again, I don't think it's the banks themselves that are going to do it. I mean, nor are they capable. And as for building bridges, it's interesting, wakfs often did that. Now, not the saying that we have to go back to a charitable means of investing, in, but still. Uh, is, I, I'm sorry, I'd have to talk to you later about the mortgages. I didn't catch every word of your question. As for the muhtasib, we think of the mutawwa in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, that is one fraction of what the muhtasib was. Uh, the, the market regulatory parts of the muhtasib function have now been distributed to the Ministry of Commerce in Saudi Arabia, the Standard Setting Board for you know, uh, copyrights and, and uh, sort of industrial standards and so forth, safety, food safety, things like that. Those were once functions of the muhtasib. Um, it's an interesting uh, institution. One can study it in, uh, even in Mawardi, the famous book on public law, has a very fascinating section on the muhtasib. Well, thank you. An, an officer of the state, not, an, not a volunteer. Thank you very much. And uh, I know some people have to go, so I'm going to uh, draw things to a conclusion at 8 o'clock on, uh, on schedule. Um, I, th- I think you'll all agree that that was a a thoughtful mix of insights um, from a, um, the manager of a huge fund on the one hand about the, uh, trying to fit Islamic finance into contemporary theories and impact finance. And then on the other hand, um, from the point of view of scholarship, uh, what makes Islamic finance Islamic? And um, picking up uh, Dr. Vogel's phrase as, as opposed, to, as he put it, to a disembodied algorithm. And these are um, really interesting and um, important issues. And uh, speaking for myself, I, um, I think there's a huge contribution being made now on this subject. Well, uh, I'm going to um, uh, uh, end by uh, thanking the uh, Department of Law of the London School of Economics uh, the Islamic Legal Studies Program, uh, Harvard Law School, Harvard University, and particularly uh, Nazim Ali, who's um, played such a role in um, these events. Uh, I'd like um, to thank you uh, all for coming and for uh, your excellent questions, but um, really, uh, above all, and on behalf of all of us, I, I would like to um, especially thank our two very distinguished and thoughtful speakers. Thank you.